The nice thing about the book of Revelation is it's easy for us to find in our Bibles, isn't it? Go to the back. There it is. The end of the story. You know, I do that with, with some other books I read. I, 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 I will read the end of the book. Find out if it's any good. And then if I want to, then I'll go back and read the rest of the story to see how we got to that point. The, the overall big point of the book of the revelation of Jesus is it reveals that Jesus wins. That's the big picture. You can't get any bigger picture than that in the book of, of, of the Revelations. Yes, Jesus wins. And yes, believers in Jesus need to know that. We need to know that. Because sometimes in the midst of the stuff of life that we're going through, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't seem like it. But he does win. But there's a, there's a, there's a secondary theme to that. If Jesus wins, somebody else doesn't. If Jesus wins, then your adversary, the devil, the one who is your accuser, does not win. And that's also good news because sometimes today it seems like he is. It seems like he does. And yet this book tells us that as well. In fact, the chapter that we're in this morning, we take a pause in in some of the main storyline, as we're, as we're going through the book of Revelation, I want to I just pause and pick up that storyline as well. Keep the big picture, and I'll rehearse this week by week, so as we go through, we won't lose sight of the bigger picture for the details as we uncover them. That this world is broken. It is in exile. It is separated from God, much like John is separated from his churches there on the island of Patmos in chapter 1. But those churches can overcome. Jesus has a, a particular word, a personal word to each one of them, as he does through his word to us, that they can overcome even in times of severe opposition. That's chapters 2 and 3. In chapters 4 and 5, we find that they can, we can overcome in Jesus who is worthy to bring about God's end. He can bring God's judgment and bring in God's everlasting righteousness, put an end to the sinful rebellion. He is worthy to do that because he himself has already taken that judgment. He is the lamb who was slain, the one who took the judgment for our sin and our rebellion upon himself first. And so he's worthy then to initiate God's judgment on all those who refuse to receive God's forgiveness. Those judgments begin to unfold in, in, in the seals opening in chapters 6 and 7. And it's, it's a ramping up from, from how bad things are now. It goes from bad to worse, and yet there's the opportunity. The world can see and perceive that their day with God has come, that God is coming in judgment, and there's an opportunity now to respond. There's an opportunity because God will, in his wrath, remember mercy. That only increases as those seal judgments move to trumpet judgments. Trumpets are loud. They proclaim in the ancient world. They were for announcements, and the announcement cannot be missed anywhere in the world. And yet even in those, those severe judgments and a terrible, catastrophic time upon the earth, there is still opportunity to call upon the Lord and be saved. In fact, in the midst of that, we saw last week in, in, in chapters 10 and 11 that God has his witnesses. There are those who believe in Jesus who are his witnesses to people around him. 
around them. There are the 144,000 witnesses that he has sealed with his protection. There are these two prophetic witnesses that look a lot like and seem to have the same impact as, as a Moses and Elijah. In the midst of all of that, God still has his witness, the, 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 the opportunity to receive his forgiveness and his restoration still remains. And yet, why has all of this chaos come? That's what we get to in chapter 12. All of this is coming from the, upon the earth and cannot be avoided because this is where it comes from. In chapter 12, pulls the curtain back a little bit. It, it, we, we, we pause the series of judgments and we will now put, put on display... For, for, for everyone to see across the canvas of the heavens, there's, there's this panorama that explains what has been going on through history, what will occur to bring that ongoing conflict to a, 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 a climactic conclusion, and then how it will unfold in resulting rage from there, what the aftermath of that will be. So there's three scenes in Revelation chapter 12. Scene one, there's a drama concerning the woman, the child, and a dragon. Seems like core elements for a good story, right? Well, there was this woman, and she was going to have a child. Oh, that's wonderful. And ready, pouncing before her, there's this big, red, terrible dragon. Ooh, it just got a little ugly. Okay, we're going to talk about that. The scene two, then, is a war in heaven between angels and demons. This also could make a good movie and what the end of that will be. And then scene three, Satan's time is short. The screws are beginning to tighten. He has been cast out of heaven. His gig is almost up. And so he rages against God's people on earth. Those are the three scenes. A long conflict, a pivotal battle, a pivotal battle and the resulting rage. Let's jump into Revelation chapter 12. I want to read, look for those three scenes as I read, and then we'll talk about them one after the other. And a great scene appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun. The moon was under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, 
Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his kingdom have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered or they have overcome him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, so she might fly away from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a times or three and a half years. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea, which leads us into chapter 13, which we'll save for next week. So we could divide, I think we could very neatly divide this chapter up into, into three moves, three scenes, and I would title it this way. I know your notes are very detailed in the back of the bulletin. I gave you a lot of cross-references. I don't always do that, but some of these images in the book of Revelations, it's just good for you to be able to know where that's found. Go back to it later. We won't be going through all of those references this morning, but I want you to have them so you can well, check this guy out. Is, 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 is what Pastor Bob telling you, is that really the way it is? Does, does it really say that? Go back as they did in Berea, in Acts, in, in, as described in the book of Acts, and see if these things are so. So I give those to you, but I would outline it this way even more simply. I would say the devil loses. He loses through history. He ultimately loses this grand battle in heaven. He's expelled from there, and he will lose even in the last days on the earth. He loses, he loses, he loses, and will extend from there to one more step. But let me talk about these three first. The devil loses through history. We can trust God to fulfill his promise through history and to preserve his people. We see that in this little scene with the, well, it's actually just a grand scene, with the woman and the child and the dragon. Now, who are they? Well, the child is the most obvious. The child is identified for us. The child is one who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. And again, we're back in Psalm 2. Not only that, but that's the same description that's used concerning Jesus when he comes in his glory to reign as king in Revelation chapter 19. Not only that, but it was also used to describe the reign, the rule, the authority that Jesus would share with his church to those who overcome in Revelation 2 and verse 27. So the child is Jesus, the Son of God who will reign, the promised Redeemer who would come, who would be born in order to save us from our sins. Well then, who is the woman? Well, there's three ideas given, especially once we know who the child is. Well, the child is Jesus. The woman must be Mary who gives birth to Jesus. That was a classic understanding in the Middle Ages, that, uh, that the 
that, that the woman is Mary, and Mary was the queen of heaven with the sun and the moon and the stars all around her. That idea expanded a little bit to say, well, the woman is the church, the church through whom Jesus comes to the world. The only problem with that is, is Jesus didn't come from the church. The church, in fact, comes from Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And he creates this new, this new humanity out of both a Jew and Gentile. All the peoples of the earth. There's a new humanity that is formed. So the, so the, the church is formed out of Jesus' death and resurrection. The church doesn't lead to Jesus' birth. The best answer, and I think it fits the whole flow through Revelation and through Scripture as a whole, is that this woman is Israel. You see, I've told you before, all along the way through the book of Revelation, we're going to see these images we're going to have these strange references. And it's not John simply trying to come up with language to describe these strange things from the future that he's seen. No. It's John intentionally guided by God's Spirit using Old Testament images to bring them forward to fill out the understanding of those who know God's Word. One of the reasons Revelation, which is meant to be the great encouragement for the church, one of the reasons it's so confusing for us is that the Old Testament imagery is so distant to us. We spend little time in there, but for the first century church, the Old Testament was their scriptures. They were in it constantly. Many of them had grown up in it, and these images then make clear sense to them. And we've seen this one before. Uh, a, a sun and, a, and, and the moon and the stars gathered together. Twelve stars here. We saw the image once before and there were 11 stars plus one. This, this all happens when the son of Jacob named Joseph has a dream in Genesis 37. And in Joseph's dream, first of all, he has a first dream where there are, he's, there, there are sheaves of wheat. Each, each of the brothers has a sheave of wheat and, and their sheaves are bowing down to his sheave. And it seems like, well, he's being honored above them and He's, he's one of the youngest brats of the boys, so they don't think that he should be exalted among them. He's the, he's the little kid among them. And so they don't like the dream so much. Well, Joseph has another dream. This one's even stranger. And in this dream, he sees the, um, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars are bowing down before him. And he tells this dream to his brothers. Maybe some of you are thinking Joseph would have been a lot smarter to keep his dreams to himself. But he shares that dream to his brothers, and his father says, his father gives an interesting interpretation. He says, what are you meaning that, are you, are, are you, are you saying that, that your mother and I, the sun and the moon, and your 11 brothers will bow down before you? That didn't make sense to Jacob, although he doesn't deny it. He considers that. Hmm, what could that mean? Later on, they would discover what it means when his, when his brothers got tired of, of Joseph and they first threw him into a pit and were going to leave them there to die, but then they thought they could make some pocket, pocket money on the deal, so they sold him into slavery. And then in Egypt, sold into slavery, he is accused and condemned for that which he does not do. And he's cast into the dungeon. And others are executed there, but he is raised up. Not only is he raised up out of the dungeon, but he is raised up to sit at the king Pharaoh's right hand. And he becomes, because God tells him what's coming, 
and to store up for a coming famine, Joseph becomes not only the savior of all of Egypt, but of his own brothers as well. Joseph is a wonderful picture of Jesus himself. Rejected by his brothers, cast into the pit, raised up to the sovereign's right hand to be the savior of the world and of his own brethren. And so in that picture, it's a reiteration of a promise that came first to Eve that her seed would bear, her descendant would crush the serpent's head. And later on, a descendant of Abraham, through Abraham and one of his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that, that promise is going to come through Israel. And Joseph, that promise is repeated in, in Joseph's dream and the typology that he is. He just shows what that future son is going to look like. And this woman is Israel. It is, the, it is Jacob the father and the 12 sons. It is the family of Israel out of which the Messiah will come. And Jesus is born. Yes, to a virgin, a maiden named Mary. But a daughter of Israel who is the chosen one out of that people through whom Messiah will come. And, and so, from the woman is born the child, the child Jesus, and the dragon is there ready to pounce. And he does. Just after he's born, Herod gets wind of it and seeks to destroy the child. And yet he's foiled. He kills many innocent babes there in Bethlehem. But Joseph and Mary and Jesus are already gone. And again... He attempts to destroy Jesus at his crucifixion. And there the enemy thinks he's done it. There the devil thinks he has won. And yet he hasn't destroyed Jesus. Because on the third day, the stone was rolled away. And the tomb is empty. And why do you come and seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen just as he said. And then he ascends to the Father's right hand. He ascends to right next to the throne where Satan himself would have put himself to be. So in these three, you find this, what's been happening all through the ages. You see, you have a dragon here with, with seven heads. And I'm going to talk about those seven heads and seven crowns next week in terms of the empires of the world. But there has been an ongoing attempt through history to eliminate a particular people. This vision explains an ongoing animosity against a particular people through history and attempts to destroy them because through that particular people, God's greatest promise would be realized. And God's even character still, even after the coming of Messiah, God's character in fulfilling his promise by yet fulfilling promises made to a particular people among us. And through that people, the rest of the world continuing to be blessed. That will happen in Messiah's kingdom. And the enemy would continue, the dragon would continue to try to thwart God's promises. And yet we can trust God to fulfill his promise, to preserve his people, because first of all, the devil loses through history. And then... There's a, there, there's a next battle scene that happens, and the big question there, this battle in heaven, where the armies, the armies of heaven under the archangel Michael, there's a war with his, Michael and his angels, and the devil and his angels, and what's going on there? Who is this dragon? Well, this dragon, 
who we know as the devil. He's identified as the, as the devil, as the ancient serpent, all the way back from the Garden of Eden. Who is this devil? He himself and those who follow him are called angels. You caught that in the second section, where they war against the devil and his angels. You see, the devil himself is identified as an anointed cherub, one of the highest of the angels who actually dwelt in the presence of God, who rebelled. He wanted more than that. He was one of the highest of created beings, and yet he wanted more than that. It's described in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28. I keep those chapters in my mind, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, because, well, 14 and 14 is 28. It's easy for me to remember. And these are two chapters that are, there's more there than you see at first glance. These two chapters are speaking of two kings, the king of Babylon, the king of Tyre, but behind these two kings, there's a greater being. Behind those two, these two kings and their condemnation, there's something more. So we'll jump into the middle of it just to give you a taste of that in Isaiah chapter 14. He has been talking about the fall of the king of Babylon. Okay, that's good. But it goes deeper now. In verse 12, there's a spiritual power behind the king of Babylon that is now addressed. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? This is not the king of Babylon, a human any longer. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. And God says, no, you will not. And God puts him down from there. The same kind of thing is spoken of in Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 11. Now we're talking about the king of Tyre, but we're talking about a spiritual ruler behind that king. And it says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. The king of Tyre wasn't there. Every precious stone was your covering Sardis, topaz, diamonds, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, crafted in gold were your settings on the day that you were created. Verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub, an angel. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless till unrighteousness was found in you. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and so I cast you to the ground and I exposed you before kings. So there is a spiritual power that is behind the earthly powers. I think not only then, but continuing through earth's history, that is true. But there you get a glimpse of this devil, accuser, this Satan, an adversary, who was one of God's highest, who made himself God's enemy. And because he's God's enemy, he's our enemy. And it comes to a head in a battle that I don't think has taken place. Some people would suggest, no, this battle is when he was cast out of heaven, when he first rebelled. That's when this battle that's described in Revelation 7 happens. And, okay, I understand why some would think that, but the more common understanding, which I also think is, 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 is right, is Satan has continued 
though he was cast from his place as a high archangel, a cherub, in the courts of God, he still has access into God's presence with other angels. Some of his fallen angels also still have freedom of access and movement. Some of them have been imprisoned, jailed in the pit, in the abyss. In the abyss. And you remember those demons that Satan cast out of the, of, the, of the demonic man in the Gospels and they asked to go into the pigs rather than to be sent into the abyss. The same kind of thing. So some, some of these fallen angels, demons, have been in prison because they went too far. Others are still given freedom for a time until God's end. Satan seems to continue to be given access and to even at times approach God's presence and bring his accusations with him. That's what he, what he does in Job chapter 1, in Job chapter 2. He's an accuser of Job, but as he accuses Job, he also accuses God and faithfulness to God. And it says here that this one who is finally cast down in this war of heaven is the accuser of our brethren who believe in Jesus. He's our accuser today. He brings accusation before, and yet those through whom he currently accuses, they overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. So I don't think he's ultimately expelled yet. He still has opportunity to bring accusation against you, not only in your own mind, but he has opportunity to bring accusation against you before God. And yet there we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Evan's comments about lawyers And there is a prosecutor, there is an accuser, and there is also a defender. And Jesus is our defender because the debt has been paid. He will accuse until his access is removed, but the price of it, of our guilt, yours and mine, has already been paid. Know that the battle is won by the Lord. And this battle will be ultimate. This ancient serpent, one of the other reasons I think this has not happened yet, is when they declare, now the kingdom of our God has come. Now the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. That's a future celebration that they refer to him as that ancient serpent. You know that reference. That's an easy one. That's Genesis 3. And yet Genesis 3 is a long time ago from when this battle of heaven occurs. Genesis 3 and the serpent there is now considered an ancient serpent, something that happened a long, long, long time ago. still has its effect, but it happened a long way back. So Satan's fall, his expulsion from heaven in this battle isn't something that happened in the past. It's something that will happen. I think it happens in the middle of the tribulation. Let me give you just one one brief glimpse into Bob's heresy. This is why I think it happens in the middle of the tribulation. There in the midst of the tribulation, one of the things that the devil's antichrist will do is he will establish himself in the temple of God and demand to be worshipped as God. Sound familiar? In the very place that God set his name to be worshipped. The Antichrist for the devil will demand that he be worshipped as God instead. That sounds like the same old rebellion rearing its ugly face one last time and God says, no, we're not putting up with any more of this nonsense. Buddy, you're done. And he's sent packing. 
and he's kicked to the curb, and his time is short, and he knows it. So there is a futility enraged. And they say, watch out, earth, because he knows his time is short, and he's coming, and he's raging. Well, how will we stand against him? In such a terrible time, how do we stand against him even today? And the center of the passage is, if you get nothing else out of this morning, get this. And they overcame him. They conquered him. And that word ought to sound familiar to you. They conquered, they overcame, because it's the same word that was used over and over and over again in each one of those letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Every encouraging letter, every exhorting and challenging letter was, was aimed to this end that they would overcome against the temptations, against the pressures, against the troubles, against the accusations. They would overcome. How do they overcome? And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of, our te- of their testimony, and because they did not love their life even unto death. I want us to focus this morning on three ways that we will overcome. There is an enemy that is working through history. There is an enemy that will culminate in a final battle. This is bigger than us. This is a spiritual thing, a battle in which we ourselves could not stand except we have been given the means to stand, and that is in our Lord Jesus. They overcame by the blood of his testimony. Our enemy, the devil, is primarily an accuser. And the blood of the Lamb is where accusation meets forgiveness. His accusation cannot stand. That was Luther's approach. We sang his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And Luther, Luther faced the attacks of the devil. In fact, he, he personified his description of those attacks. And the devil would rail against him and point out all of his guilt and all of his flaws and all of his failures and all of his willful sin and and. and And Martin Luther's response would be, and by the way, you left a few out. But none of that matters because all of that has been paid. In fact, all of what what I will yet do has been paid by the blood of Jesus who died for me in my place to give me his righteousness and his life. And there's nothing you can do about it. That was Luther's answer to the devil. The devil's accusation meets forgiveness in the blood of the Lamb. That's how we stand. That's how we will overcome. And they overcame by the word of their testimony. The devil is a liar. The devil is a deceiver. The devil will tell you lies about God. He will tell you lies about you. He did that in the garden. He said, oh, did God really say? Did he really mean it that way? What if God's actually withholding from you? Have you heard the similar line? You know what God's will is, but it feels like, well, God's just trying to keep me from having a little fun here. What's it going to hurt? I'll go ahead. What's the big deal? He's saying, yeah, yeah, you go ahead. What's the big deal? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. You had, and the word of their testimony, the word of God's truth declared themselves and to one another. The enemy will come to tell you lies about yourself. You don't really matter to God. God doesn't really know us. You know, God's got much bigger fish to fry. He's not really paying attention to you. He doesn't care about you. He hardly knows you exist. Have you heard that one? 
Have you heard it lately? Oh, yes, he does. He, he knows. He cares. But the devil will lie to you about that. And that's why you need to feed your soul on the word of testimony. This is who our God is. This is what our God does. I need to hear that for myself. You need to hear it from me. I need to hear it from you. We need to hear it from one another. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And the third key, the devil is an accuser. The devil is a liar. And the devil is a tempter. And yet they overcame him. Because they did not love their lives even unto death. Why not? What's wrong with life? Is this a, is this a, a despondent despair that life isn't worth living? Not at all. But they loved God's promised future more than this broken present. They determined that they would not exchange God's future gold for the devil's glitter. They did not love this present life, even unto death, because they believed God. And so Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, set your affections on things above, not on the things of the earth. It doesn't mean that we do not enjoy the good things that God gives us in life to graciously enjoy. But it means that we hold them in open hands, that we would share them with others, that what we would use, what we've been given, that we could use merely for our own enjoyment, we will use them sometimes sacrificially for God's greater purpose instead. And the only reason to do that is because I believe God about his future and about his purposes. And there's no way that I can outgive that. And there's no way that I like Jesus' sacrifice to glory. There's no way that any sacrifice I make isn't going to be manifest in greater glory in God's future. So we will love God's future more than the broken present. We will live by his grace in this present for and toward his future. And so, in the midst of the enemy's wrath, knowing that his time is short, in the second half of the tribulation, he will come and he's left with earth to ravage. That's all he's got left. And he hates those who inhabit the earth. He hates those whom God loves. He hates those whom God's, God works through. He goes after those two prophets. He, he, he hates those who are saved as a result of their testimony. The devil hates you for your faith. In Jesus. He hates that in you. But you don't have to believe in Jesus for him to hate you. No, if you are made in the image of God, if you were created in God's image, there's things in you that remind him of God and he hates you for it. Not only that, you don't have to be much of an image bearer. He hates you simply because God loves you so much that he gave his son for you. There is an adversary, there is an accuser, there is a destroyer, there is a devil, there is a spiritual enemy against us, is against humanity, mainly because God is for you and God loves you. And there is this grand rebellion. That's why chapter 12 is so important. It reminds us there is this grand rebellion and there are two sides of it. And we are collateral damage and the devil would love to destroy us simply to give God grief. And yet he's frustrated 
over and over and over again by God's redemption, rescue, and restoration. And that's how the future is going to play out as well. In the midst of that last, that last scene, there's, the, there's the, the woman still. He goes back to try to destroy her and, to, and destroy others who are followers of Christ. And yet the woman is, is protected by God and carried away into a wilderness. The wilderness reminds us in the Old Testament of Israel rescued out of Egypt, but they're in the wilderness before they have received God's promise. Babylon, again, is a time of wilderness when they are out of the land waiting to be restored into God's promise. And there are other images that go with that. There's the eagle's wings and there's a river. The imagery of a river, a river that, is, that, is, that is, flows from the mouth of the dragon and tries to sweep the woman away, tries to destroy this woman representing Israel in the, in the end times. And the river through the Old Testament is an image, or a flood, a raging flood, is an image of trouble. You see it in the Psalms a lot. Psalm 32, Therefore let anyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Psalm 18, verse 4 and 16, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents, floods, raging floods of destruction assailed me. But he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Psalm 144, stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from many waters. Over and over again, the waters, the raging flood is a, is a severe trouble out of which God rescues his people. And so he does here. In whatever raging trouble then the enemy brings against Israel and other followers of Jesus, even in the worst of times in the tribulation, God protects them in it. How does he protect them on wings of eagles? Is that just a giant eagle that swoops down and grabs them and carries them off somewhere? Or is it again an image? In the midst of the wilderness, in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4, you yourselves, God said, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Warned by Isaiah of another wilderness experience in Babylon that they would endure. In Isaiah 40 and verse 31, you know this verse, some of you. But they who wait on the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. You see, again, the eagle's wings are, are, are imagery for us that evokes those Old Testament promises of how God kept and preserved and protected and lifted up out of the trouble his own. And he continues to do that. The same God from then, the same God in the midst of the tribulation is our God today. And that's why, that's why we can overcome. That's why not only do we learn here in the book of Revelation chapter 12 that Jesus wins, but we learn that our adversary loses. He is losing all through history. He will lose in this ultimate pivotal conflict. He will lose in the midst of his final futile rage in the midst of the tribulation, and that is about to unfold in coming chapters. But not only that. Our adversary loses today 
in your life and in mine when we overcome, when we are victorious, not in our own strength, not by trying to be unaccusable, but when accusation meets forgiveness, when we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. What is he accusing you of today? Is it true? Is it partly true? You know what he does? He takes a fault and he spins it into much more still to overwhelm you with guilt if he can. But you can't get out of it. You can't, you can't get free of it because there's a hook in there. There's part of it that is true. And what do you do with that part that is true? Well, John already told us. In 1 John 1, 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just, he is right to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The answer to the enemy's accusations is not to try harder, to be better, to have nothing to accuse of. Because, folks, can I just say it? You already have plenty to be accused of. And he will not let go of it. But God does because of Jesus. And that is our answer. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. We overcome him by the word of our testimony. He is a liar and a deceiver. And that's why you need to tell yourself God's truth. That's why you need to tell others God's truth. You need to know God's truth and growing in it and be feeding your soul day by day. Take opportunities of examples like signing up for our next fall round of BP Academy classes. I know, shameless commercial right in the middle of the message. But we do that to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why? Because we need to know God's truth so we can answer the enemy's lie. It's not only for you. It's for the people around you. They overcame by the word of their testimony. You need God's truth and people around you need to hear. This is what God has said about himself. This is what God has said about them. And they need to hear it from you too. And not only that, but they loved God's future more than their present lives. They did not love their own lives, even unto death. But there was a mind toward others. There was a mind toward God's future. Loving God's future, I said, more than the broken present. Satan is example of the selfish life, the not content life. A life where I don't have enough, I need more. He wanted more. He sought it for himself, even if it would put him against God himself. But Moses is an example of one who looked to God's future instead of the present. Moses seemed to have it all. Moses was being raised in Pharaoh's own household. And yet, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 tells us that by faith, Moses, he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting, passing pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ, of following God's Redeemer, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking to the reward. Moses, like you, looked more to God's promised future than to this broken present. We'll be grateful for the present. 
but it can never satisfy. And that's the enemy's lie. He will, he will offer you something. He says, this will fulfill you. This will give you meaning. This will make you significant. This will satisfy your cravings and your longings. This is what you really hunger for. Go ahead and take it. He did that to Jesus, offered him all the kingdoms of this world. He offered him all the kingdoms of this broken world. And Jesus said, no, no thank you. Because he intends to give us and to share with us a redeemed and restored eternity. Jesus himself endured the cross, despising the shame, because there was set before him an eternal reward of glory. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and God will lift us too in due time. Satan loses in history. He loses in the end. He loses even in the midst of the worst of the tribulation, and he loses in your life and mine. And that's where I want to close in prayer. Concerning his accusations, his lies, his temptations. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we know that we face an enemy who would accuse us. And Lord, in many ways, rightly so, because we are guilty. But Father, our guilt is covered by your Son, Jesus, our Savior. He died in our place. And Lord, we, we believe you for your forgiveness. And so his accusations have no then power over us because they... They have no claim to you, that we are rightly restored in relationship with you because of Jesus. So, Father, that, that guilt that troubles right now, I pray. Lord, for each one of us here, that guilt that causes us to shrink back and hide, Father, we, we acknowledge it right now. We open it up before you, and we say, Father, I confess this to you as my guilt, my sin, my shame. And I ask you to forgive this also because of the blood of Jesus shed for me. Father, strengthen us against the enemy's lies by telling one another your truth. Father, stir in our hearts a confidence in your future that causes us not to love the present brokenness too much. Set our affections on things above, Father, not on the things of the earth that might distract us. Rather, let us use all things that you allow and enable us to have. Let us use that in open hands to share, to care for others around us, and to show something of Jesus, our Savior. This we pray, and all who believe said, Amen.